Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I am joined, as always, by my friend. Uh, he makes me call him his my, my best friend. Best actually. friend, uh, <laughs> only co-host, friend. comrade, the only friend. That's that would be actually close to accurate, probably. Uh, Danny Bessner is here, of course, as you just heard, uh, and we are very lucky to be joined by two distinguished guests uh, this week. Kelly Greco is a senior fellow at the Reimagining U.S. Grant Strategy Program at the Stimson Center, and Jennifer Cavanaugh is a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. They've written a piece for foreign policy called the uh, titled The Indo-Pacific Has Already Chosen Door Number Three. So-called fence-sitters are rejecting zero-sum geopolitical binaries in favor of multi-alignment. This is, I gather, not something that uh, is going down very well in Washington. But Kelly, Jennifer, thank you both for coming on the program. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. We're glad to be here. Uh, so maybe we could start by just briefly defining the Indo-Pacific. I know this is the new kind of term of art for the region, but I, I get the feeling it's not terribly it's not well specific, defined. Derek. What a shock! Uh, <laughs> so maybe we could just sort of talk about briefly what this region is uh, geographically. Uh, I don't know, emotionally, whatever, whatever you know, uh, dimensions you want to you want to go with here. Sure. So I actually think it's a great question because I'm not sure that it's used all that consistently across different um, agencies within the government as well as different outlets. Um, at least as I think Kelly and I are thinking about it, it's pretty expansive to include not only what we typically think of as East Asia, the area that includes Japan, Korea, um, China, Taiwan, um, but also then Southeast Asia, uh, which includes the ASEAN states, the Pacific Islands, um, and Australia and New Zealand, which would uh, some people refer to as Oceania. Um, and then also, importantly, the Indian Ocean region. Um, and I think that's why we added the, or why the U.S. government decided to add the Indo in front of the Asia Pacific. And that change reflected the growing recognition that the Indian Ocean um, and the Straits of Malacca, um, that this increasingly strategically important part of the Pacific and that we can't really think about security or economic issues without also including that part of the region. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I would just add two things to that. One is, it's interesting to note that the term Indo-Pacific is actually something that was coined by the former prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe. Uh, he introduced the term Indo-Pacific. and Friend United, of the pod. Yes, and, and you know, sort of influenced the United States in adopting that. And as Jennifer explained, it was really about recognition of the importance of India potentially um, in uh, a rivalry with China and particularly the Indian Ocean. And the other thing, though, I would say is it has, I think, in some ways had an unfortunate tendency, though, to encourage the United States to sort of expand even more um, in terms of how it thinks about the region and, and thinking about it as all equal, um, you know, not all parts of the Indo-Pacific, especially that expansive definition, are equally important to U.S. national security. At the end of the day, it's really fundamentally about East Asia. So maybe we could talk a little bit about 
the U.S. in this region. And and um, this I mean, there's some interesting dynamics here because, uh, you know, as you say, this is a term that um, is still sort of being defined. And these this is a, a and, and the region, uh, you know, if we go back far enough, you can you can find, you know, the U.S. operating in different ways in different parts of what is now, I guess, supposed to be a, a, a unified thing, or at least we're trying to make a unified thing. Uh, what is it that the United States thinks it's doing in the Indo-Pacific? I know your, you know, your piece is about uh, kind of perception versus reality, but what is it that the U.S. thinks it's doing, and, and how far should we go back to try and understand that? Do, do we need to go back to the Bush administration and the war on terror, uh, the Obama administration and the uh, so-called pivot to Asia. What what do, what do people need to understand the context as as this as U.S. interests here have kind of coalesced? I would say that's wow. That's a really interesting question. Versus, I would say I think what the United States thinks it's doing is countering Chinese power. What it sees as um, a challenge to its power and influence in the region. It has for a long time been the sort of number one power. You know, we can use the word hegemon if we'd like, but certainly the dominant power in the region and the United States would like to keep it that way. At the end of the day, that's really what this is about. And, you know, when you said Bush, I actually thought you were going to say um, his father, um, <laughs> George. Well, we don't, we don't criticize Poppy Bush on this podcast. Well, no, he's, I wouldn't uh, either. Big, we're big fans. Bush yeah. family's a sponsor of the show, actually. <laughs> but the reason I say that is because if you go back to, um, you know, the end of President Bush's, this is, uh, you know, 41's administration, they actually were already talking about China and potentially China thinking very long term as potentially being the, the, the long term threat to U.S. primacy. So I would say you'd have to go back all that way, to be honest, all the way to back to um Bush 41, uh, to sort of see some of the origins of this thinking. And it's been consistent across really administrations. So I would just add that I actually would go back even further. I think the roots of especially the U.S. military role in the theater, you have to go back to, you know, World War II, um, the setup of the uh, U.S. basing infrastructure in the region, because that's really the foundation or becomes the foundation for U.S. power. Um, and it becomes a really important point of both power projection um, from bases in Japan to other parts of Asia, uh, as well as sort of like the uh, really strategically important economic region that the U.S. has benefited significantly from. And ever since then, you see it popping up every now and then the importance of this region to the United States. So there's this idea that with the you know pivot to Asia with Obama, that this was when the United States started going back to Asia. But in reality, it never left. Um, in, to some extent, it's been um, deeply embedded in the region since the end of World War II, um, and it's been a really important piece of this concept of U.S. primacy. Um, this is an argument that I think Stephen Wertheim makes very well in his book uh, about the ways in which this sort of became embedded into U.S. identity and um, national security strategy more generally and lives on to, till today. Yeah, I mean, going back to the open door notes, I mean, it was a long time goal of the United States to have refueling stations in the Pacific region. They they literally conquered and occupied the Philippines in the the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. So yeah, the U.S. Has, has long had a presence in the region. So so I guess maybe to put my 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 question a bit starkly, why do you think there's the fantasy amongst U.S. policymakers that they're going to be able to remain forever dominant in the region when this is obviously ridiculous 
And there is obviously no way the United States is going to be able to do this. I mean, that that's a great question. I think it goes a little bit back to this idea that U.S. primacy has become embedded. It's not just a strategy, um, but also embedded in U.S. identity. So if the U.S. isn't the dominant military power um, in the world and in the Asia-Pacific region or the Indo-Pacific region, um, then, you know, what is it? Um, it's kind of the fundamental question. And so there's this unending push to maintain um, this dominance, especially in the Indo-Pacific region, because it is seen as sort of like the future, you know, economic driver as being much more important than Europe in that sense. Um, and so there's an unwillingness to um, to think about alternative approaches to the region uh, that I think um, just becomes really embedded uh, in the way that DOD thinks about it, and DOD drives a lot of foreign policy. Um, so that then becomes really difficult to change. I just have a, a bit of a question because, like, one of the things that's nice about being on the West Coast and also being in academia is that I don't have to like pay attention that much to the Beltway debates about these things, and it just seems to me like they exist in a level of unreality that would make me want to bash my brains against the wall basically every day because you see people just if you look at the pure numbers of it and you see like just pure Marxist materialism. The control, the U.S. control of GDP or the G7's control of GDP has been steady decline for decades. And, and which region has been on the ride? East Asia, particularly China. But you still have this discussion in Washington, D.C. as if, you know, what whatever island chain the U.S. is going to be able to station its forces at is going to prevent China from reaching hegemony. And it's just it's just so absolutely absurd to me. So you have this identification with it. But how do you how do you deal with this? Like day in and day out dealing with people who just like don't live in reality like in 15 this is it's not even that interesting an issue frankly because what's going to happen is china's going to assert itself the u.s is either going to fight world war three which it shouldn't do or it's going to leave the region this is what's going to happen in the next 10 to 15 years so what is it like for you both to actually have to navigate this world which is frankly intellectually boring from at least from my perspective (laughs) wow that's it it's an interesting question uh you know, DC has a, a, a tendency to sort of be an echo chamber. Uh, so, you know, what's interesting is that these that the group you're talking about doesn't see themselves as not living in reality. Uh, you know, they would they would they would say that they're very much living in reality. I I just as a ta- like a tactical issue, I find it's often the most helpful to just ask questions as opposed to directly challenging the view to sort of say, well, what about those GDP figures? You know, how is that consistent with your view? Or, but where do you plan to distribute your forces in the Indo-Pacific when you're planning to, distri- you know, calling for distributed operations? That's a, maybe helps chip away a little bit. But I think, um, you know, one of the problems I think is that people have like a lack of imagination in some ways. They become so accustomed to well, who gets into these positions, right? It's not the best and the brightest, frankly. Like, I've talked to them. You know, I've been to many Brookings meetings. Um, it's like it's 1955 all over again. Like, who 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 makes a career in this industry? Because I think that's actually been some really interesting work has been done by someone like Stephen Walt or whatever. Where it's kind of funny. All the realists now are focusing on the second image. Oh, it turns out it's not just the international system, guys. But, like, basically, like, who gets into these positions? Because it just seems like everyone's asleep at the wheel. We're either putting the pedal to the metal of climate change or war, and no one who's actually in a position to do anything looks at what is very, again, obvious. 
I think that in DC, it's very difficult to go against the grain um, and to voice unpopular opinions. And I think that's one of the reasons why people who do voice those opinions tend not to end up in the positions of power where they're actually making decisions. Because if you're if you're willing to put yourself out there and make um, a provocative argument against this um, status quo or the consensus view, people either ignore you or you become branded with some, um, you know, some uh, uh, stereotype or categorization that doesn't actually apply to the details of the argument you're making. And then you're toxic to one side or the other, right? So how do you navigate the space where you can challenge the mainstream view without... Um, alienating yourself and the people that you're actually hoping to listen to is a real challenge. Uh, I tend to fall back on, on using data to the extent that I can. Um, you know, I did my PhD at uh, Michigan. So like data is my bread and butter. And so I always try to think about when I'm looking at a question and I can see that the consensus view is wrong, what data can I use? What visualization can I use to show that this um, consensus view or this mainstream perception is not correct? And, you know, people don't always pay attention to data. They'd rather go with their gut or with kind of the narrative. But if you, if you're lucky and you can get like that one statistic or that one graphic, it can help to cut through um, some of the narrative. Um, And that doesn't mean that you're then like, that's the new narrative, but it means that you've maybe changed the minds of some people and inserted some different data into the debate that wasn't there before. Just a quick question. Are people going from these positions to like Raytheon? Basically, is there like this revolving door? So, you know, they're, they're able to get nice appetizers in Northern Virginia. So it makes it all worth it. Is, is that what's happening? It just seems like the system is so incredibly corrupt. I, I think this is, I see this um, in particular on the Pentagon side. So, you know, I think the United States foreign policy in general is highly over militarized. And a lot of the way the military thinks about military operations has somehow been applied to almost how we think about foreign policy. And so what I mean is it makes sense if you're in the military, for example, to be thinking about controlling a battlefield um, and, and, ha- and being able to you know, dominate on a battlefield. That doesn't necessarily, that kind of thinking necessarily apply in a helpful way to thinking about foreign policy, where it's often about influence, not control. But as a, but one of the things I think that happens is, in particular, is among the senior, you know, officers, is after they retire, they often go into other positions in think tanks, in the defense industry, um, consulting firms. And so it that view, I think, becomes more part of, more embedded in the overall foreign policy perspective of the United States. And, and that is something we haven't really wrestled with. The system works, in other words, is what you're saying. The system works. <laughs> um, so I, I want to pick up on the theme of uh, unreality a bit, but I, I know this is sort of, this seems like sort of a long walk to get to your piece, but I, I think there's a lot of unreality going on here and, and, uh, it's in a, sp- in a particular area. So when we talk about what the U.S. thinks it's doing in, in the Indo Pacific, what is how does the U.S. how do these U.S. policymakers and, and think tankers you know people uh, in and around the foreign policy space think the U.S. is regarded in this region? Because as you've mentioned already, you've sort of built up this uh, this image of the U.S. operating in a, in this place in a very kind of 
I don't know. It just seems almost not not indifferent, but uh, very military military oriented, very militaristically, uh, very kind of self image or self uh, you know kind of interest oriented uh, around containing China. I- I'm just curious what what the people think that they're doing for the region like what benefit the region gets from having the u.s uh involved in this way and and in a hegemonic uh fashion i think there's an assumption that most of the countries in the region are afraid of china and afraid to voice those opinions and that they'd much rather have a u.s-led hegemony than a chinese-led hegemony and therefore by asserting u.s power um, you know, especially militarily, the U.S. does not have a big economic footprint in the region. I mean, they we obviously are a major export market and we do trade a lot with Asian countries, but we have basically no economic networks or infrastructure uh, at this point um, in terms of uh, partnerships. Um, so, you know, it's mainly in the security space, but by asserting this power, we are, um, you know, helping the region um, because this is what they prefer. Uh, they prefer to uh, remain within this sort of exclusive U.S.-led security bloc. And I think this goes a little bit back to, like, the failure or, like, uh, the application of Cold War thinking. Um, there's a tendency always when a new situation arises to look for historical analogs, and there's utility to that. But when we think about um, the current situation in a Cold War context, there's a tendency to think about these, um, you know, exclusive partnerships around ideology. And that's not the world that we're living in now. Um, so the U.S. C- continues to operate to a large extent with that sort of mentality and thinks that it's doing what the rest of the region really wants. Um, they're just afraid to say it or they don't have the kind of um, power to um, do it themselves. Just to build on that, I would say is there's also a, a sort of assumption under it, which is nations are going to ultimately have to choose the United States. They may not want to choose right now between the United States and China, but when things get tough, they're ultimately going to decide to choose the U.S. camp. It's just a matter of time. So one of my big claims today is that we're actually entering a post-ideological age where, you know, everyone's basically capitalist now, whether you're China, you're Russia, you're you're the United States. And throughout the Cold War, people were arguing that once you went capitalist, you'd go democratic. That clearly didn't happen, but also I don't think it's that important. I, I don't. I think that the we're, we're going to look back historically and say the 19th and 20th centuries were uniquely ideological. It seems like the only place where ideology still lives is in the U.S. foreign policy establishment. So, what would you say their ideology actually is? Do they think the United States is the progressive driver of history that is going to bring world peace? Because it just seems from my perspective, again, on the West Coast, that they're kind of venal, greedy people who just want to make money for themselves, mostly. But is there an, am I too cynical? Is there some sort of absurd ideology layered on top of that? I think so, a little bit, in that, you know, the Biden administration is, I think, quite ideological. I mean, it's important to remember Biden himself is a Cold War warrior. Um, you know, he was in Congress, um, you know, during the Cold War. 
and his, I think he really believes it when he says that the, you know, this is going to be a defining century and a struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. And you see lots of evidence in DC. And I think the Ukraine war has also reinforced that worldview. But then they support Israel and Saudi Arabia. I mean, like, it's just so obviously bullshit that I can't, I mean, like, I guess you have to sleep at night somehow, but to me, it's like such obvious bullshit that it's hard to even engage with. You could say the same thing about the Cold War, right? We told it as a struggle, struggle between the totally. free world and communism and the same thing, right? It's um, it's sort of a mythical, you know, telling of it. I think, you know, values matter until they conflict with interests, at which point um, interests often take precedence, um, w- even with all the hand-wringing that goes along with that. Um, I think you see that a lot with um, the visit from Modi, um, which is going on right now, right, about um, the, the the tension between... India's strategic importance to the United States and some of the uh, ways in which India's um, democracy has um, eroded. Um, But of course, you could say the same thing about the United States um, in terms of erosion of um, democratic principles. So let's get into the the main thrust of your piece and and what the what countries in the region are actually doing, uh, which the U.S. seems to view as you as you said as a sort of fence sitting or you know there's this implicit you're either with us or against us choice that the United States uh, feels like these countries are going to or the U.S. policymakers feel like these countries are going to have to make and they're just not ready to make it yet. They're still kind of. Uh, hesitant for whatever reason. What you're arguing in the piece is they've they've made a choice. And talk about what that choice is. So our argument is that these states have chosen to be what we call multi-aligned. And that means building diverse partnerships with many different major powers. So it's not just the United States. It's not just China. It's not even just the U.S. and China. It's also India and Australia and Japan and Korea and even countries in Europe outside of the region. And they're doing this because it's in their self-interest, because having diverse partnerships and choosing multi-alignment is, first of all, a necessity from an economic perspective. They can't afford to cut out key economic partners, the U.S. or China, um, as well as often in for many of these countries, Australia is a key trade partner. Um, but also in the security space, the U.S. often says we want to be the security partner of choice. But these countries have already decided that they don't want one security partner. They want lots of security partners. And you can see examples of this across the region. I think one of the best is Singapore. Um, Singapore has allowed rotational presence of U.S. forces and allows the United States to fly reconnaissance flights over the South China Sea. But they also expanded their military relationship with um, China. They exercise with China. They have a visiting forces agreement with China. They do exchanges with China. Um, and they have relationships militarily with other countries in the region as well. Um, so they're clearly made a decision here to be engaged with everyone at the same time. And they're not waiting to make a choice. And there's, I think, two important reasons that they're able to make this kind of choice. Uh, one is that this is not like the Cold War, where it was an error of bipolarity. It's really an era of multipolarity. And in particular, of middle powers have really risen and closed the gap between uh, middle powers and great powers. So they're in a better position to um, pursue other options. And then I think the second part of it is also geography really matters here. 
uh, many of these countries are islands and, you know, water is, it it makes a difference. It, It improves their security situation compared to if they were had a land border with China. And so again, this gives them a different oppor- opportunities in terms of the kinds of strategies they can they can pursue and the risks of pursuing th- that strategy. So let's talk a little bit about how China is perceived in the region and as uh, you know as opposed to the US. And I think um one of the problems with talking about this it, it, again it's to go back to what we uh, talked about at the beginning of the interview is that the region is very big and very disparate, and there are a lot of different factors at play. So you have countries like Japan or the the South South China Sea, literal countries that have real issues with China's claims, maritime claims that that have deep concerns about these things, versus you know countries in the Pacific Islands who you know don't necessarily uh, have that kind of friction, but. It, it strikes me that China engages with the region in a way that is much more seems to be much more multifaceted than the U.S. They've got Belt and Road. They're offering development assistance. They're offering, uh, you know, other other pieces of a relationship where the U.S. has been so focused on military bases and power projection and uh, this kind of monotonous militarism, whether it was in the Cold War, the War on Terror, or now, you know, containing China. And so I wonder how that affects the perceptions of of these countries uh, or or when they're looking at the two kind of great powers playing around here. I would just say from personal experience, I was uh, in Singapore in May for the big regional um, maritime conference. And my impression in talking to um, officials from across the region and also academics, think tankers, is that really they're not happy with either China or the United States for slightly different reasons. They're not happy with China at all. And there's, I thought, a lot more pushback, I found, um, in terms of, you know, how the, uh, what the kind of message China's sending and the things that they're saying and their claims, particularly in the South China Sea, that it's China's viewed as a, increasingly as a problematic and aggressive actor. That was clear. At the same time, they seemed very frustrated with the United States, uh, particularly over the Taiwan and what they see as an unnecessary stoking of that uh, of that issue, um, and in the kind of policy the United States is pursuing and worsening the security situation. And so the big theme was really we are caught between both of you, and don't really like what either of you are doing, and you're both problematic in different ways. I think Kelly brought up the Taiwan question. I think that's a really key point. Um, For the United States, the Taiwan question is basically the center of its focus on Indo-Pacific. And U.S. policymakers have said as much in testimony um, that, you know, China is the the main focus and Taiwan is the pacing threat. Like, that's what we're focused on. That's why we want to build economic networks. That's kind of the motivation behind everything that's happening. Maybe not everything, but most things. But for most of the rest of the region, the Taiwan question is just... It's not an existential question. Um, they prefer the status quo to any kind of change, but they're not really tied up in the outcome. They're much more focused on what's happening in the South China Sea or for the Pacific Islands um, and New Zealand, what's happening in the South Pacific. Um, that's really where their focus is. And so they see and interact with China in a, in a very different way. The second thing I'd say is that I think one important point is that the the United States and China also have different ways of engaging with the theater. 
The U.S. tends to want deep and exclusive relationships with its partners. And with those partners, it has um, security ties and, you know, in some cases, trade ties and economic investment um, and multiple different types of um, uh, information sharing, intelligence sharing, uh, technology agreements. Um, For China, they're much more interested in having lots of ties with lots of different countries, but they're much shallower. And I think countries in the region recognize that. They recognize what they're getting with each partner. It is something different. And again, this goes back to why multi-alignment benefits them, because they can take advantage of both of those types of engagement to get what they need. I want to talk a, a little bit about, you, you. when we talk about Taiwan, uh, there's this fear, um, I think justifiably, and I, I wonder how you know countries kind of uh, deal with this when the U.S. cuts security deals with Papua New Guinea, which, of course, you know, Joe Biden's uh, canceled trip to, to Papua New Guinea was was one of the f- things you mentioned in your piece, um, or when it deepens its security cooperation with the Philippines. And, and this comes with uh, basing rights, essentially, allowing the U.S. to use military facilities in these countries. The obvious you know, direction that this points to is if there's a war over Taiwan, these are the, the places the U.S. military is going to stage. Uh, and I just wonder when when countries enter into these agreements, what is the the thought process behind like we could be putting ourselves on the front lines of uh, World War Three? Is there uh, any assessment of that or, you know, do they feel like they can control uh, the relationship somehow? What's the what's the thinking going on there? I would just say that I, I think the region views some of these agreements, um, like the one in the Philippines or Papua New Guinea, differently than how we perceive it, um, particularly in Washington, D.C. And that they, pers- like, for example, see the Philippines one as much more consistent with a multi-alignment strategy that, that Philippines is pursuing. So they would note that, you know, there's still extensive economic ties with, um, between Philippines and China. They would also, you know, note that the access agreement is not quite actually in, in practice what it sometimes has been depicted in the media, which is it's true. There are four new um, sites that the United States will has permissions to use. But if you look closely, you'll also see, for example, that Marcos has been clear that those facilities are not to be used for offensive operations. Um they have not made any kind of promise that the United States can use those facilities in a Taiwan contingency. In fact, they talked about a South China Sea contingency as their real concern. So the region kind of sees more nuance in these moves than the United States does. Yeah, I agree 100% with with what Kelly just said. I don't, the access to these facilities does not in any way imply that they will be able to use them in a Taiwan contingency, although that is how everything in the region is portrayed in the media. And I think there's a recognition of that in the in the U.S. military, but there's also a hope that when the fighting starts, these countries will be sufficiently concerned as to allow additional access um, agreements. Um, same thing with uh, Papua New Guinea. Um, the leader there has been very clear that um, the, the, the bases and the new access agreements are, are not intended to be used for offensive operations. And in fact, there is like language in the agreement that suggests that, you know, both countries have to agree to whatever happens there. Um, again, it's really more about, um, 
diversify relationships. Um, Papua New Guinea already has security relationships with Australia. They have deep economic ties and get security assistance from China. So this is adding to their portfolio of relationships uh, and, um, you know, uh, uh, giving them a little bit of security for self-defense. Like they would probably allow for support there for self-defense. And I don't think we should underplay the importance of Papua New Guinea's ties to Australia there. Because who's really going to benefit from any sort of access in Papua New Guinea is going to be the uh, Australians and their ability to project power forward should they choose to get involved in something that's happening um, further, like near the Taiwan Strait or in the South China Sea. For the United States, um, even if we were allowed to do o- offensive operations from there, still pretty far from the Taiwan Strait, not all that helpful. So uh, you, this leads me into another question, which is the role that Australia and New Zealand in particular play in the region as, um, uh, you know, not quite U.S. proxies, but very Western aligned, U.S. aligned uh, entities that that are have have taken a side, let's say, in the, the, the U.S.-China rivalry. Um, you know, when we see things like the AUKUS deal, which is going to, you know, give Australia uh, nuclear submarines, not nuclear armed submarines, but nuclear submarines, uh, that obviously has a, a very military component that is clearly anti-China. Um, and, but also when we see things like the Quad Alliance, which again, you know, sort of, uh, obviously anti-China and includes Japan, which is very Western aligned, uh, includes, uh, you know, India, which is increasingly coming into that orbit. How do countries uh, how do other countries in the region sort of view these relationships? And and again, I'm particularly interested in how Australia and New Zealand are perceived, uh, whether they're perceived to be acting on on U.S. behalf, essentially, in, in some ways, uh, or if they're viewed differently. I think Australia is one of the closest aligned to the United States in the region, and I think there is a sense that the U- that Australia is. I don't know if U.S. proxy is the right word, but definitely one of its closest allies with Japan. And, you know, you, you do see them leaning forward, at least rhetorically, in suggesting that they you know, might support the United States in a Taiwan contingency. But even there, there's, I think, um, some ambiguity in how far they would go. Um, they certainly haven't um, gone all in with the United States. Um, the domestic politics is very mixed. Um, in terms of how supportive Australia would be for sending um, any sort of forces. There was just a new poll that came out, you know, looking at Australian support for running a blockade. Um, if China were to institute a blockade or send ground forces, and there you're looking at something like, you know, about half the population that's supportive of these types of things. Um, and in reality, Australia, at least in the near term, and even in the longer term, it's pretty limited in what it can provide militarily. Um, they don't have a lot of capabilities. They don't have a lot, a lot of air and sea lift. Um, they'd be dependent largely on the United States. So they could probably find intelligence sharing. But I think there's there's some ambiguity there. Um, and I'll, I'll let Kelly talk a little bit about New Zealand. Yeah. So just to add also to Australia is that, you know, a few years ago, some senior officials made um, some remarks that really caught headlines here, basically saying, like, of course, we'd be with the United States in a Taiwan scenario. Um, we'd be part of the, the alliance. I think it's worth noting that there's been a govern- a change in government recently, and you've seen the new government be less hawkish. Um, and in fact, their foreign minister, Penny Wong, qu- clarified a few um, months ago 
Australia has not made a decision to join the United States in an intervention over Taiwan if China attacks. And I think we need to take that message seriously um, because any decision like that would require, you know, sufficient domestic support. New Zealand is interesting because um, it's one treaty ally is Australia. Um, You know, we at one time had an alliance with them, but we ended up suspending it in the 80s over um, some nuclear issues and our nuclear submarines. And so we don't have they don't have a treaty relationship with us. The other thing is that they actually have been in terms of Western countries or Western leaning countries. They're actually the most closely aligned to China. Um, the New Zealand signed a major trade, a free trade agreement with them. And I think it was 2008. And since then, you know, economics has just taken off. And, and so they very much are still largely pursue sort of a notion that we can engage China economically and politically and work this out. Um, one of my favorite examples of how, um, New Zealand sort of approaches things is that, you know, the human rights violations that have been occurring um, against the Muslim population in China, you know, they condemned it publicly, but they didn't actually impose sanctions um, the way Australia and the United States did. In fact, what they said was, we really support the sanctions that the United States and Australia are imposing. That was their level of support. Um, I think that really demonstrates sort of some of the the limits and on their, their concerns. And if to the extent they're concerned about China, it's about China in the Pacific um, and Pacific Islands. So maybe this is ignorant, but it seems to me that there's an unreality to all of this stuff, which is that is the U.S. going to fight World War III over Taiwan? I mean, that, that is the fundamental stark choice. China is going to eventually try to take it back. This is, this is not fantasy in the next 50 years, probably earlier. So is the U.S. going to fight World War III over Taiwan? I mean, with Ukraine, the U.S. has shown that it's willing to, you know, give a shot in the arm to the military industrial complex with an issue only tangentially, if at all related to U.S. interests. But what do you think is going to actually happen with Taiwan? Well, that's a great question. Kelly and I have uh, a separate set of projects focused specifically on this question. Um, you know, you know what's going to happen? I think it depends when, when and how um, things unfold. Um, I think that actually a blockade scenario is much more likely than a straight up amphibious invasion in the near term and probably the medium term as well. And amphibious invasions, you know, as we've seen throughout history, are very difficult, um, even for the United States, and they would be very challenging for even, you know, even a Chinese military 10 years in the future, I think, would find an amphibious invasion to be very I, I challenging. Hear, this is what I hear a lot, that it's very tough, all that stuff. There's lots of tough things that have occurred in history that people will do because they consider it important to their national interests. And China has made it very clear that they consider Taiwan important to their national interests, just like Putin made it very clear he didn't like NATO expansion. And so this is what I hear when I talk to people in D.C. It's like, oh, it's tough. They'll never be able to do it for these technical reasons. And then it happens anyway. So to me, it's really a question of strategy. That's that's most important. The country has made clear for decades what it wants to do. It's going to eventually do it, regardless of how tough it actually thinks it is. And it just seems like it's there's an unreality to this discussion when when I talk to U.S. policymakers or people in the foreign policy establishment about this whole thing. So I would actually push back on the notion that Beijing is definitely going to do it. I think that that's actually increasingly a narrative in D.C., and I think it's a dangerous narrative 
because it makes conflict in some sense inevitable. And I don't think that's actually the case. Uh, China, in many respects, benefits from the existing status quo, the same way we benefit from the existing status quo. What they really don't want in Beijing is for Taiwan to become an independent state. Yes, they would like it to become part of China, but engaging in an operation to do that, particularly if it requires military action, has risks, um, particularly to the party. Uh, and so they benefit in many ways from the status quo. In what five I- years, sure. But if we're talking about 25, I, I disagree. I, I think that that it is clearly a long-term strategic goal and they are obviously going to do it. So the question is, in, in five years or 10 or 15 or 20, what is what is going to happen? I, I just can't imagine a world where a, a extraordinarily powerful China, which has for most of its history been extraordinarily powerful and dominant in the region, it wasn't for 150 years for contingent reasons, doesn't take back a, a piece of land that it considers part of its soul. I just don't see that happening. Right. But I think that also does have a lot of assumptions about what China might look like in, say, 40, 50 years from now as well. What, you know, economically, will it continue to rise? what, you know, domestic problems at home. There's, so there's a lot of factors in it. I think what you're getting at, though, is a, a question, um, which is, you know, fight now or fight later almost in some sense, right? You know, um, you know or, or leave the region. It's not our region. It's not our region. We, we, we do not belong there. It is very far from the United States. We won, we, as Adam Friedland said, we won the jackpot in World War II. We fucked that up in 50 years. And what, what do we think we're going to be able to do there? From a macro historical perspective, it just seems very clear that the U.S. is not going to be able to remain there forever. So on, on the, on the Taiwan question, if Taiwan, I mean, if China is as powerful in 40 or 50 years, as you're sort of suggesting, then I would suggest that they probably won't need to invade militarily and they will be able to uh, force Taiwan to uh, become part of China as they did with Hong Kong. And I, that's why I say a blockade, I think is much more likely. I think if they're really that powerful, they could pretty easily um, implement an effective blockade that strangles Taiwan and forces the situation um, and which it would be, um, you know, too difficult to necessarily, you know, run or break that blockade or strategically, um, you know, be a, a, a losing proposition for the United States, um, but wouldn't actually escalate to a war. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the leaving the region question, I think there's two separate questions here that you should disentangle. One is, 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 does Taiwan have a strategic value that some in D.C. seem to suggest it does economically and militarily that make it worth fighting for um, compared to the cost, which would be extremely high? So that's one question about the defending Taiwan. And then the second question is, you know, what is the future of the U.S. role in the region? And that role could be it could be to remain the dominant player, as you've suggested. And I, I, I would agree that the, there seems to be a push um, in in DC to maintain that sort of hegemonic or primacy uh, primacy role, or does the US accept sort of a different role in the region, which is you know maybe as a co-equal with China or taking on a different um, a different uh, military and economic role in the region? So in forty or fifty years, you can imagine the region looking very different. Um, you know you don't know what's going to happen with Japan, you don't know what's going to happen with India, um, you don't. Uh, necessarily, there's you'd have to think about the tra- trajectory of um, Southeast Asia. 
Um, and then the U.S. might still be in the region, but in a very different capacity. And so I think the Taiwan question and the future U.S. role in the region are related, but separate questions. This is the thing that keep, what keep me, keeps me up at night, is the notion that we should fight a war now when maybe we, our position is a little better than if China continues to rise in, 50 year, rise in 50 years, to avoid having to fight a war that we may or may not actually, may, may or may not actually happen in 50 years. That, to me, is very alarming that we're headed in this notion like of inevitability, um, which no one should want to end up in a war with China. What are the U.S. real interests in the region? Let's just be stark about it. To, to consume and, and uh, aid capitalism, which has cooked the planet. I mean, what is the actual interest in this region if we're not looking at it from a mid-20th century perspective where we thought you could just have constant growth and constant circulation of goods that were effectively costless? So I think, I, I, well, I think something that, that you guys have alluded to here is that if you push this out along a long enough time frame, if you're talking about 40 years down the road, 50 years down the road, let's say by the end of the century, uh, there are a lot of variables at play, not just regionally, but within China. I mean, you don't know how climate change is going to affect China, which is already being battered in the south with droughts. And, uh, you know, now you know, north northern China is under a massive heat wave. Uh, we don't know what the population of China is going to look like. It's aging. It's starting to uh, decline, perhaps for, you know, and perhaps it's going to decline for some time to come. So there's a lot of, of variables. And I wonder... Uh, you know, when we talk about this calculus, do you know? Do you want to fight a war now versus do you want to fight a war fifty years from now? Uh, is that the, the same question they're asking in Beijing? And what's the what could the answer be there if they're seeing these trends and wondering what uh, how just how strong a position they're going to be in uh, in another half century? I think what you're describing is a little like the World War One scenario. Um, where, you know, oftentimes people depict World War I as sort of Germany was a rising power and then decided, all right, let's make our bid for regional hegemony. But when you look um, closely at the evidence, um, they were actually really concerned that they were declining relative to Russia rising. Um, and that was a motivation for, the, for, for a war. I think what it does is it, it suggests the United States needs to really have strategic empathy and understand China's position and China's thinking and try to shape some of those calculations so that, you know, even if they are declining relatively, if, if that's a perception that they have, that they don't feel as though they have to make a bid now because they're going to somehow be locked out of the entire system in order otherwise. But the U.S. has made clear it doesn't want China to be involved in the system. You know, only the U.S. is allowed to manipulate international institutions. Only the U.S. is allowed to have the global reserve currency. Only the U.S. is allowed to have 750 military bases. So, I mean, there, there just seems to be nothing really within the U.S. foreign policy establishment that gears toward that. And I, I, I just I, I am curious, what is the U.S. interest in the region from your perspective? Why should the U.S. be there? Well, I, I do think that the, the U.S. has economic interests in the region. Um, I don't think it's the only region in the world where the U.S. has economic regions, nor do I think that the U.S. needs to have military primacy in the region to benefit from those um, economic regions. In fact, the focus on military primacy and the refusal to make you know, new trade agreements in the region or to enter into things like the um, CPTPP has harmed U.S. interests. 
So I would say that that's a, a, a key um, variable there. I do think that there are, you know, having such a large U.S. forward military presence and being so militarily interventionist, I don't think is beneficial. But there's a lot of research that shows that there are some benefits to the United States to having these military alliances that may look different in the future. But I don't think that kind of pulling back from all of that is necessarily the, um, any more in U.S. interest than maintaining the status quo. But, you know, a lot of things you pointed to, such as, um, you know, uh, U.S. dominance of, of uh, international institutions, U.S. having the reserve currency, like these are policy choices. They're policy choices that policymakers could make to suggest to Beijing that the goal here is not to shut China out. Now, the Biden administration often says that, but then they, they do things like export controls and forcing countries to choose, you know, Huawei or no Huawei. And, and so it's, its actions have been very different um, than its kind of rhetoric. But there are policy choices that could be made um, to, um, to shift some of these um, features of the prevailing order, international order, for lack of a better term, um, to better incorporate Beijing. In fact, I think, you know, Kelly and I talk in the piece, um, the foreign policy piece, about you know, what a multi-aligned world means for the United States. Um, and it doesn't mean um, continuing to push this with us or against us, but it does mean leaning into multi-alignment. And there are opportunities for the United States and to build ties with China. So, you know, one idea would be to allow allies in the region, Japan, Australia, to build more ties to Southeast Asia, to take the lead in some of these. Um, so the U.S. might step back, but the U.S. would still benefit from having these countries enmeshed in sort of a network. Another would be to reach outside the region, to have um, the U.S. serve as a broker, not as a centerpiece, but as a broker to the Middle East, to Europe, again, trying to build more diverse partnerships. And these partnerships wouldn't necessarily have to exclude China. Um, were we able to find re- areas of agreement where China and the U.S. could come together or where China has more in common with countries in the Middle East, etc. So I think that thinking about this, multi-alignment actually gives us gives the United States um, opportunities to take the temperature down. And then on the Taiwan question, which really is sort of the, you know, centerpiece of conflict or centerpiece of disagreement, you know, the U.S. could de-emphasize that as a centerpiece of foreign policy to help kind of, uh, again, lower the temperature in ways that it seems unable to do. Now, of course, this assumes a lot of change uh, in U.S. foreign policy that has been sort of moving in a different direction with the um, congressional committees and things like that, competition over who can be kind of more, more hawkish on China. But again, those are those are policy choices. So as Kelly said, you know, conflict isn't inevitable if the United States chooses to make a difference out of, of, of decisions in its foreign policy. Yeah, I, I agree, but I also agree it, I, I, it's unlikely. <laughs> I don't see that happening. Uh, but one question I do want to drill down on as we, as we come at the end here is that what precisely are the U.S.'s economic interests? We live in a very unequal society. It's shown that capitalist consumption destroys the planet. I just don't think that 20th century circulation of goods is going to be able to proceed as people thought it was. What are the actual economic interests? I see at the macro scale, you know, if you're looking at a macro economic measurement, which I mean, I think there's been a lot of work done suggesting these aren't very effective or real measurements. You could say why the U.S. should be in East Asia. But could you talk a little bit more about what you actually see the economic interests as being? 
I mean, I'll just say I'm not an economist, so um, I'm more of a defense person. But, you know, I, you know, I do believe in free trade, um, which I know we're going to disagree on that. But um, I do believe in free trade. I do. I also understand your concerns about how it impacts the United States in terms of um, Americans um, and unfair distribution. Um, you know, but when you say believe in free trade, what do you mean by that? I do think that it's unfortunate that the United States has chosen to be a bystander when um, the region has concluded major regional free trade agreements, lowering barriers to trade um, that it's not not benefiting from and and is standing outside watching that and not having those kinds of economic relationships. I think it would improve us economically, and I think it would improve our security as well to be part of that. I, I would agree. Um, I think that there are benefits to free trade. Uh, I don't think that when Kelly and I are talking about this, I don't think either of us means sort of unchecked free trade, right? There was a belief, you know, several decades ago that, you know, more trade is better, the freer, the better, right? And we've seen that that, that promise doesn't necessarily end up panning out the way it was expected to. Um, the, the benefits from trade are um, not equally distributed. Um, they are they benefit some people and they hurt others. And so there have to be ways that we build um, corrections into economics, um, into trade um, agreements that help to account for those differentials. Uh, I think the Biden administration maybe is going too far in the opposite direction of focusing more on the harms from trade and how to mitigate them, but then not actually having the trade, right? So like the Indo-Pacific economic framework is... Um, you know, supposed to be the U.S. major economic footprint in the um, Asia-Pacific region um, and completely insufficient to serve that goal. So thinking of maybe finding a balance that's somewhere in the middle between, um, you know, if this, if the, if, if free trade, if the CPTPP is not the right approach, then like what's in the middle? Um, but I would also point out that the CPTPP did have, you know, so- a lot of protections in it. Um, that would have helped to raise standards and um, things like that that would have addressed things like uh, climate change and um, supply chain security and some of the other issues that people have pointed out as being some of the downsides of uh, of globalization. Uh, I guess I'm a bit skeptical given the last 30 years that any of that would happen. And I, I think I'm still unclear about how the ordinary American actually benefits from any of this except through low prices on certain goods, which have been directly linked to the heating of the planet. So I just wanted to point that out, and then I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to Derek. Uh, well, I do want to, I want to kind of wrap up on uh, what may be too big a question to, uh, to answer, but um, just to get your thoughts on this, because I think uh, Kelly mentioned a, a couple of answers ago uh, that the, the U.S., needs to have more st- greater strategic empathy for for decisions or for for what the chinese government may be thinking. Uh, and when i think about the unreality of us policy in this region it's run through with a lack of strategic empathy. This is something we've talked about from time to time on this show. Uh Bob Wright who is, you know, writes a lot about this stuff. We've had him on the program. Uh this just complete dearth of strategic empathy on the part of U.S. policymakers, the inability to view anything from the perspective of another country. And I feel like when you talk about the way the U.S. approaches countries in the Indo-Pacific, it, there's just none of it. There's no uh, strategic empathy there. Um, so my, my question is, 
how do you change that? Like, what do you, what do you do to try to change that at the level of policymaking in DC? And do you see any indications that it is changing? And I, you know, I, I don't want to uh, p- place too much emphasis on things like, you know, I think we, you mentioned the, the pivot to Asia is kind of, you know, bullshit, but it, does it reflect a, a, a sort of dawning awareness that the U.S. has, you know, not been approaching countries in the Indo-Pacific with a, a level of empathy? Does the fact that we're putting, you know, we're opening new embassies, trying to, you know, uh, expand the diplomatic footprint, that we're negotiating, you know, um, slightly at least more generous compact of free association agreements with the countries uh, uh, in the uh, Pacific Islands? Is there any indication that that there's a change happening here, and and you know whether there is or not, how do how do you get people in DC to be better at this stuff? I think some of this comes down to our neglect of diplomacy writ large. You know, one of the values of having diplomats um, who are really knowledgeable um, is the kind of expertise they could bring and inject into the policy process that kind of regional and local knowledge. Um, And I don't mean, you know, diplomats who are essentially serving ambassadorships as, you know, political gifts um, for donations to campaigns, but really people that are career diplomats uh, that bring a kind of expertise and more conversations. One of the things that I find so troubling in Washington is that somehow just talking to someone you perceive as an adversary is now seen as a sign of weakness. And that's not how we thought of it at all during the Cold War, because it's such an opportunity to at least understand what's on the other side's mind, Um, even if you're not going to concede anything, just to have a better understanding. And I think we need to really start to understand again what diplomacy is about and, and, and the purpose of it in foreign policy. And I'll just make a plug for my colleague, Evan Cooper, at the Stimson Center is working on a project around this. And I think it's really something that the United States, we should really try to invest in is diplomacy. I agree with that. And I I worry a little bit about some of the things you mentioned, the opening of new embassies, the more uh, more generous um, a compact of free association agreements, that those things are done um with this idea that they're going to help the U.S. win these countries over from um, the Chinese side. And that's not, while they may be the right move, like they may be helping to build diplomacy or helping us to have more strategic empathy, the narrow view of doing things because they counter China or they displace China is is wrong, I think, in my opinion, um, the wrong reason to do them, because it reflects, again, this wrong view of the of the region as these countries are choosing um, either the U.S. or China. And I think the Solomon Islands is a great example. We're opening a new embassy, but they also just signed a security agreement with China, right? Countries are not making this choice. So I think um, I agree with Kelly that there has to be more investment in diplomacy and a recognition that military power only gets you so far. But there also has to be a recognition that that um, the U.S. can gain. Like the, the world is not so zero sum. It is positive sum. Um, the U.S. can gain and provide new resources and new investments and help broker new uh, agreements and alignments that benefit countries in the region and should be doing that. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's going to uh, necessarily hurt China, and it shouldn't mean that it's going to hurt China. 
Um, so the view, this kind of narrow view of everything through this strategic competition lens, I think, um, pushes us in the wrong direction. It pushes us away from strategic empathy. It pushes um, the United U.S. policy away um, from diplomacy to where diplomacy is a weakness. Um, and it then leads to a set of decisions that are often are not optimal from a U.S. interest perspective um, over the longer term. Jennifer Cavanaugh from Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Kelly Greco from the Stimson Center. The piece, again, is the Indo-Pacific has already chosen door number three. We'll have a link to it in the show description. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah.